I remind to you that I remind you that last time we have been coming to this fundamental paragraph where Patanjali presented as method for reaching this divine consciousness and when speaking about the state of Atam Prajnata Samadhi he uh, introduced the meditation of the mantra Aum he first introduced Aum as being as a symbol of this perfect consciousness of Ishvara and that point as we said then it is a constant of all the Indian mysticism of all the Hindu speculations on spirituality and then he taught that in the sutra number 28 that that bija this bija aum should be recited repeatedly while probing mentally its meaning and at that time I have tried to suggest some of its triadic meanings some of the endless chains of correlations with everything triadic in the Indian culture and spirituality and I have actually given you an exceptional initiation in how to meditate with that mantra, with the use of that mantra which is again a fundamental constant of Indian spirituality and now I am continuing with the sutras there is actually one more sutra which continues with the practice of the mantra Aum, of the fundamental mantra Aum and with its effects but which makes connection with the next subject which Patanjali will then approach he says in the Sotra 29 and a reading of it will go like this from this practice which we have just described this mental japa with meditation upon the meaning from this practice the consciousness turns inward which means there is an understanding of the inner self uh, in yoga that's very significant as you know and the obstacles are overcome actually Patanjali will tell us in the next sutra which those obstacles are he just described the whole sadhana Patanjali gave here a great practice about how to uh, look into the cosmic consciousness how to look into this pure consciousness this special Purusha which he calls Ishvara the consciousness of God through the help of the mantra Aum and he confirms that to, through this the consciousness turns inwards which means towards the Atman this is a turning towards Purusha towards the pure consciousness and at the same time the obstacles are overcome he acknowledges therefore the existence of obstacles exactly as he acknowledged earlier the fact that there are five fundamental states of mind and those five states of mind are having positive or negative effects from the standpoint of evolution and therefore uh, they should all be eliminated for the reaching of the Asam Prajnata Samadhi and then here he simply confirms that this practice of meditating with Aum is turning one towards the Supreme Consciousness but some obstacles uh, are present and this practice also helps you overcome the obstacles and in the Sutra number 30 
he abruptly mentions these obstacles. The definitions are very difficult to give purely, simply because to translate one Sanskrit word by an exact equivalent in English language or any other language for the case is usually very difficult. That is why in some other translations you will find slight variations which actually enrich the meaning of these. So, Patanjali is going bluntly into mentioning nine obstacles, if you want nine states of mind or nine phenomena, which according to him are putting an obstacle to this understanding of the divine consciousness. Therefore, you can say, well, didn't he say that before when he described five modifications of the mind? Yes, now he describes it nevertheless from another standpoint. He takes another angle and he describes it in a more practical way, in a way which you are going to see is also related with the yogic approach to dealing with emotions, with the emotional part of the mind. He, in this translation which I have uh, made here, the, I have translated the words through their approximate following nine values. Disease, dullness, doubt, procrastination, laziness, craving, erroneous perception, inability to achieve finer stages, and instability are the obstacles to yoga and to this work of spiritual discovery. Let's look into them a little bit more. Disease is placed first, that is a classical one in yoga, because if you are diseased, you do not have energy to look into the deeper things. That is why, you know, yoga has this obsession with people being healthy, balanced, because when people are vital, healthy, balanced, then they have energy to look in the higher things of the spirit. Until that point, people will spend a lot of their worries, energy, focusing of attention on their disease, and that is why disease is the first obstacle and the serious obstacle. We hardly know examples of great spiritualists who reached spirituality while being diseased. Ah, we know examples of great spiritualists who at some point of their life they got ill, either like uh, Ramakrishna and Ramana Maharishi who took tons of karma upon themselves and then they uh, ended with some cancer or some similar condition, or we are talking about great Christian martyr type of saints, such as Saint Teresa of Avila or Padre Pio, who have been lying in bed ill for years and years, and uh, suffering because of again taking upon themselves. Those were not people who were in the process of spiritual realization. Those were the people who had reached the spiritual realization, and now they had decided to come back, and to do some things. So for them the problem was not their ability or inability to reach high states of consciousness, samadhi, or whatever you want to call it. For them they, the, they had already reached that, and they had another agenda in their life. And that is why you cannot compare those and say, well, if Saint Teresa of Avila was ill, why does Patanjali say you have to be healthy? Saint Teresa of Avila was not ill while she, while she climbed the hill to her realization. She was ill afterwards as an act of martyrdom and self-sacrifice, and that's an entirely different dish. And therefore, 
remember that disease remains mentioned as an obstacle because it saps our abilities and we need to have full availability, full potential, full disponibility for this utmost effort of spiritual accomplishment. Dullness is a little bit synonymous to stupidity. It is simply like to be uh, lacking enthusiasm as well is simply a flat state of mind. It is compared by most commentators with the predominance of tamas, guna, which uh, generates exactly this sort of feeling. It can also be compared with the excess of telluric energy in yoga, which creates some sort of dull personality. Doubt is here mentioned mostly as the abnormal doubt, as the unhealthy doubt. The yogis accept a sort of healthy doubt in the meaning that I am asking questions. That means I am expressing my doubt, I am asking questions, and I am in search of the truth. This is a healthy doubt. But the person who usually doubts in the cynical, modern way, starting from Descartes and then falling into this French philosophical sterile uh, doubt, is the person who is becoming in a certain way cynical. It's like I doubt, but I do not seek and ask the questions and do what has to be done. And therefore my doubt turns into cynicism. I become an eternal doubter who is not a scientist doubting, who is just a doubter for the sake of doubt. This doubt which is eternal and which indeed is a great sickness of the mind is actually described by Patanjali as one of the nine great obstacles and uh, which can undermine the spiritual efforts of the human being. Procrastination is like lack of decision, postponing endlessly and that again is like people who are halfway through, I would like to, but I don't know if, but if, but if not, but if, then you are not going anywhere. So this procrastination is again killing. Such people usually should act by the kind of psychology that first of all they should give themselves a deadline, a firm deadline after which there is no more procrastination in whatever spiritual direction we are talking about. And like you know, I cannot decide if I want to do this practice or I don't want to do this practice. Well, give yourself a deadline and say, by the 15th of June 2008, I'm going to take the decision about this and then it's final. And then such people should also remember the famous dictum that whoever takes decisions and works does mistakes, but they don't do the biggest mistake of all, which is doing nothing. And therefore... Uh, it is better to take a decision which is wrong and then to realize and correct it rather than taking no decision for fear of taking a wrong decision. Therefore, that in includes, it goes into this concept of procrastination. Laziness is very clear. It's again a lack of enthusiasm. It's a lack of energy, if you prefer, as well. And uh, it goes again in the poisons of Muladhara Chakra and the this, uh, then if you don't have energy, then pump up your energy, simply. Craving, which means being subjected to desires. There are people who are subjected to their desires to incredible extent, and nowadays our civilization has become so 
tolerant, so lax in this kind of thing that it's considered just normal that people should be subjected to desires, while in the older cultures people subjected to desires were considered a bunch of weaklings, just a little bit better than animals, actually. Therefore, uh, this subjection to desires, which makes us be the slaves of desires, this craving that all the time we cannot, there are people I have known, people who got to the brink of death for not being able to get some a dish of food or some ice cream or something which they desired in an almost pathologic way, like in an almost morbid way. And therefore this thing with a desire can go to levels which are hard to imagine and which sap our discrimination completely, completely. And uh, then on the, list, on the list of Patanjali, erroneous perception that has already been commented in a different way and then people have a wrong perception, which means uh, take it simply like this. In this world, if you take the different religions, you find lots of denominations and some of them are sect-like denominations which actually denominate absurd sects. Let's take an obvious one because if I'm going to say something bizarre about I don't know which orientation of Christianity you might say well how do you know that the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Pentecostals or I don't know who they actually don't hold some amount of right or wrong into what they say okay let's leave the dubious ones aside although for most people those things are just fanatic brain that sick and let's look at some absolutely preposterous one like the guys from the Temple of the Sun or some other bizarre thing from Switzerland, who I hope you remember some ten years ago committed collective suicide in the wake of the Bale Hop, Bale Bob, Hail Bob Comet, uh, with the strange belief that actually there is an alien civilization coming with a Hail Bob Comet, and if you commit the suicide at a given astronomical time, your soul is exalted and taken by an alien civilization on the hale Bob comet and away from this planet and blah 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 and people, adult people and a number of them they actually committed a collective suicide in a country like Switzerland where you would not expect to see these things happening and they are there this is an erroneous knowledge anybody who knew that their soul is going to be saved by committing suicide on the hale Bob comet time this we can classify from a yogic standpoint as erroneous knowledge. This is knowledge which definitely does not reach to enlightenment and therefore uh, it's part of the obstacles, of the great obstacles, erroneous perception uh, as a great obstacle in reaching the real spirituality. Inability to achieve the finer stages, these are simply, it's also a form of attachment in which some people are unable to detach from their lower part to go into some finer stages of their being. There are people who are so related to their physical body, to their physical perceptions, to their physical things, that for them even a simple yogic relaxation is a source of traumatizing experiences because they are afraid or God knows what. It's true, many beginners are afraid when they do their first relaxation, because suddenly it feels like you are going out of your body, that you are floating in a space which is mysterious, that you don't feel your body and limbs anymore, and then the animal is getting claustrophobic and paranoid and wants to kick back. 
but anybody who has been doing yoga for a month, two months, three months, six months, a year, and so on, they realize that relaxation is actually blissful, and it's a wonderful thing to be able to detach from these limitations, and to feel this condition of existence, which is beyond the body, which is transcorporeal, which is beyond the flesh and blood of the body. And that actually is a feeling of freedom, is a feeling of release, is a feeling of being liberated from a limited prison. And therefore, uh, this feeling, again, of inability to reach finer stages is only for the people who are holding back. I have uh, had examples of pupils whom I have taught yoga and they were not in a good spiritual environment. I taught them yoga like uh, old friend that I met after years and they were going to college in a distant town and they were basically alone day with their yoga so they had the almost impossible task that they had to do yoga while alone, without friends, without guides, without anybody close to them to counsel, without a circle of yogis, without a teacher, without and in the middle of their college studies and all the rest. And then such, for example, one such example who was a good friend, he came back after a while and when I asked him how is his yoga practice, he said, yes, you know, this yoga practice is really good. I have tried it. I have seen the primary results of it. It really works. And then I stopped because I was afraid that I was going to change too much. I was going to transform too much. This is somebody who is so much in love with themselves that they think there is no way to transform to something better. Why should you be afraid to transform? Because it's kind of, there is always room for something better. And therefore, these are people who are attached to their past and they are simply afraid to transform. This kind of thing is a qualified here as an inability to reach finer stages. Remember that nobody is unable potentially, like there is no person who if they stand on their head 10 minutes per day, and if they do 30 minutes of pranayama, and if they do I don't know what, and 50 udhyana bandhas, and this and that, they will not change, or they will not reach finer stages. Everybody technically can reach. The problem is if they want, if they dare, if they go for it, because if they look backwards all the time, and they say, oh my God, I don't know if I can do this, I have already done three steps, it feels so much, maybe I should go back to my initial stage, and so on, then automatically that's an inability, which is given by some blockage in the mind. And finally, instability, because some people reach some spiritual things, and then because of instability, they are unable to maintain them. That's also a tragedy, I have personally known examples of people who have gone close to states of samadhi and even experiencing some forms of samadhi and who afterwards, five, ten years later, they were decaying from their condition. Their states of samadhi had become just a distant memory of the past which became more and more blurred, more and more difficult to remember and which became like, yeah, right, I remember one day I did something but what's the meaning of it? What did it do to you? How did it transform your life? What are you now because of it? How did you continue? How did you keep pressing? No, this was not the case. And therefore, uh, this instability is also a tragic condition of the human being, which simply means you have to find a way to stabilize the spiritual experience. I have to say from the beginning that for most people this stability comes through a sort of stability 
of their lifestyle through a stability of their spiritual effort until one reaches a level where this can come easily and spontaneously. And Patanjali continues, he has just described nine uh, big poisons, big obstacles of yoga. This list is one of the classics. Many authors of yoga take this list and they say, as Patanjali has said, if you are afflicted by disease, lack of energy, doubts and all the rest which I have said, then your way to yoga is difficult. Remember basically that yoga in itself has the function to remove many of these obstacles. You are having problems with health, yoga will remove your health problem and thus it will remove an obstacle in the way of its own deeper level. It's like yoga is cleaning the path in front of itself, so in this way it is like a self-protecting technology and all the others. And then Patanjali goes continuing speaking about some of the symptoms which come, now he comes to the mood, that's the connection to the emotions, to the negativity of the human being, which result because of those nine great obstacles of yoga. And again the list is difficult to translate because of the difficulty to find the absolute exact corresponding word for a Sanskrit word, especially because Sanskrit is rich in meaning, and if I am to translate them by a single word again, and you can find various translations and commentaries in which the words are given slightly different, and it's again normal, understandable, Patanjali then says the, from these nine obstacles, pain, anxiety, shaking of the body, but he means more like instability of the body, nervousness of the body, and unrhythmic breathing are the accompanying symptoms of mental distraction. This is a very, very important one, because it gives you automatically a clear symptom. Pain, anxiety, instability, nervousness, shaking of the body, and unrhythmic breathing are the accompanying symptoms of mental distraction. It's a very simple list of four factors, which is exactly like Jesus would have said, the tree is known by the fruit. That simply means, these are symptoms which show very clearly that the experience which is being experienced is not a yogic experience in the Patanjali sense of calming down the mind. Pain, you are going again to say, yeah, but Ramakrishna also had pain. Yes, Ramakrishna had pain, but when he was asked about his pain, he said, don't worry, when the spirit is submerged in the immortal Atman, only the body suffers somewhere distantly, and the spirit is submerged in ecstasy, which is without stop. And therefore, he simply said, my soul is not in pain, my soul is not disturbed because I'm having a physical affliction, that's something else. Anxiety, again, we are talking about this shanti, 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 this deep peace. Instability of the body, that's where this is the premises of Hatha Yoga mainly. Hatha Yoga is working on this principle that stabilizing the body stabilizes the mind. Therefore, in the stabilization of the mind, we should witness some sort of stabilization of the body. 
even in the forms of spiritual work which are dynamic, we are witnessing a flow which is extremely stable. Like, for example, the Sufi dancers, they you can say that they are unstable in the body, but actually their whirling dance is very regular and very stable. They go on and on and on and on, but it's not jerky or unstable or nervous or shaky, it is a constant movement. The same thing can be said about some martial arts training, and especially in Tai Chi and forms of Qigong, where there is movement, but the movement is often stopping, it is going very often slow motion, and it is very, very controlled, and it shows more like a flow of energy. It has a dreamy nature in it, which has nothing to do with this instability of the body. Instability of the body is when one, for example, has ticks and taps and drums, fingers, and shakes and does all kind of other agitated things, not to mention the constant movements of the head, of the eyes, of the hands and others, and therefore this automatically shows, uh, shows the result of some of this interference of state of mind. Pain, again, if you say, I'm in pain, you automatically say, I'm victim of one of the nine obstacles of the mind, and this is the signal of the fact that I am not there yet. Pain, anxiety, nervousness of the body, which is very clear, and unrhythmic breathing, that's again a very important one, that's again full Hatha Yoga, it's the reference to Pranayama. Pranayama is exactly the opposite of unrhythmic breathing, because pranayama is the rhythming of the breath. In pranayama, the breath, the breathing process is constant, rhythmic, deep, powerful, under control, as opposed to this kind of chaotic breathing. Very often we are going to put it in the category of heavy breathing, but not only. Not only the heavy breathing related with passion and with sex and things like this, but the heavy breathe, the unrhythmic breathing related with a lot of things. Neurolinguistic programmers and psychologists of modern days have made a lot of research and they discovered lots of patterns of the breathing which correspond to all kinds of imbalanced, out of balance emotions and they have kind of stated by the, just by controlling the breathing, by rhythming the breathing, like you do in Hatha Yoga, you can actually modify radically the state of mind. And therefore, all in all, it is very important to meditate. Do I fit in the category of pain? Do I fit in the category of anxiety? Do I fit in the category of nervousness in the body? Do I fit in the category of unrhythmic breathing? And then I know that if I fit in one or several of these categories, then automatically I still am confronted with obstacles, and the meditation, as Patanjali has given it, is of a great help. And Patanjali, then in the Sutra number 32, he comes to one of the basic things that he has to say, and actually I'm going to come back to that because later he will define this as an exercise of yoga. 
Uh, here he just defines it more like a principle, and this principle is actually one of the solutions which he gives, because he spoke about Asam uh, Prajnata Samadhi, he described the meditation with Aum as one of the methods to reach there, he described the obstacles and the signs of these obstacles, and uh, now he starts to give us some solutions for removing these obstacles. Therefore, what Patanjali says now and in the next sutras are actually solutions, modalities of work in yoga. He makes a parenthesis uh, or two, but actually he keeps on saying, or you can do this, or you can do that, or you can do that. Therefore, he gives solutions to how to fight with these nine obstacles and how to remove these negative symptoms, these negative signs in the body. And he gives a general one first, in which he says, for removal of those, those obstacles and accompanying symptoms, therefore he means those nine obstacles and those four, four uh, bad signs which appear from them, so for the removal of those, the practice of concentration on one principle is to be done, which simply, simply say, he simply says, one solution to this, is to learn to focus on one thing, the one-pointed concentration. This was very, very much used in the time of Patanjali, and it was used to such an extent in the world of yoga, that actually Buddhists, when refuting Hinduism, and especially when refuting things of yoga, they actually misunderstood, and they actually came to the point of believing that the whole yoga is nothing else but a concentration, an extreme concentration on an object of concentration, on one principle. And that is why, paradoxically, in the Buddhist tradition, and I'm talking about the Theravada, the Southern Buddhism, in Tibetan Buddhism they have been in closer contact with the yoga of India, and therefore they haven't got to, into this. But in the Southern Buddhism, this concept has remained as 2,500 years old already, that the yogis were actually working to achieve samadhi, and samadhi actually meant one-pointed concentration of the mind on one subject. This is of course wrong, because samadhi for Patanjali means something else, and yet at the same time Patanjali is so elastic that he uses this for some preliminary stages of samadhi, so actually we can use a kind of continuity term, and of course the Buddhists, they rejected all the inferior ones, because they said, why are you doing this? Actually, as you will see a bit later, Patanjali himself calls these absorptive concentrations, which generate a certain effect, and uh, later this concentration mixed with deeper levels of realization, he calls them in the first chapter Samapati, as an equivalent to Samadhi, but it's not yet Samadhi, and later in the chapter number 3 of this formidable text, he calls them uh, Samyama. Samyama, Samapati, and Samadhi as kind of almost equivalent, but Samadhi is preserved in the classical yoga as a word which defines the upper end, and therefore the purely spiritual accomplishment, while the other two, Samapati and especially Samyama, are conceived as the lower forms of it, and therefore the ones which define some, let's call them, material applications, 
It's not even that is improper said, because it's not material, but it defines some accomplishments which are in the field of energy, in the field of mind. The, all those of you who remember, remember again and again this idea which is introduced in our lecture about philosophy in yoga, philosophy of yoga, that all these mind, energy, matter is classified as prakriti, as the nature, the manifestation, and purusha, the spirit, the transcendent aspect, atman, is qualified as the non-manifestation, as the aspect which is the nominal aspect. And I am saying this because sometimes you are going to find confusions and Patanjali goes on both of them. He moves sometimes on high levels which pertain to Ajna Chakra, the high levels of the mind of Ajna and even Sahasrara, and then sometimes he jumps to the void part of Sahasrara, to the Purusha, to the Shiva aspect, and then he speaks about Nirvikalpa Samadhi and things which are of the void. And therefore Patanjali moves in a certain scale. He doesn't speak about one thing. He speaks about things of Ajna and half of Sahasrara, and then he shifts also to things which are in the higher part of Sahasrara or in the void. While, for example, in the classical Buddhism, their aspiration is to eliminate these things of Ajna and stuff, and to go more into the things directly of the void. And therefore, uh, remember that uh, the theory of Patanjali is actually very complex, but, and more complete, but it gives room to some misinterpretation because of the wrong reading of these Sanskrit words, which sometimes override each other, and such a confusion has been promoted by Buddhism until today. And basically, he says, for removal of those obstacles and accompanying symptoms, the practice of concentration on one principle is to be done. Uh, this is actually a principle, which if you want to compare, it is a little bit like the allopathic medicine. Uh, normally, you would expect to have a kind of, uh, that a, a medical thing, should, like a drug, should have a kind of effect completely opposed to what you are trying to reach. But that's very difficult to achieve. That is tried in a different way in homeopathy, for example, where the principle is similia similibus curantur, which means you cure a similar thing by a similar thing. So, for example, if uh, quinine in big doses give the symptoms of malaria, then quinine used in uh, homeopathic dilution, it actually gives the opposite symptoms, which means it cures malaria. If something gives a certain symptom when it's taken big time, then if you use a homeopathic dilution which is infinitesimal, then you obtain the opposite effect. And therefore, if you cure something with something similar, but the dose make it act in another way. Well, the Western medicine, as it, as it is classified today, has been scientifically and conceptually classified as allopathic medicine. Allopathic as opposed to homeopathic, allos, does not even mean, homeos means the same, same, same. But allos doesn't mean opposite, it means other, other effect. So basically it's exactly like I'm having uh, acid in the stomach, and if I give myself a powerful chemical which produces fever, I, I get my body to forget about the acid in the stomach. So it's kind of, I deviate the force, in another direction, I give a powerful kick in another direction. It has allopathos, something else. 
It's a bit more complicated than this, but this constitutes a little bit of an idea for what Patanjali says. Patanjali says, you are plagued by some of these negative things, all these nine obstacles, and all the symptoms which accompany them, this pain, anxiety, and so on. One way of dealing with it is to focus on a black dot. If you focus on a black dot, you, fo you forget about your anxiety, or about your pain, or about why. Not because a black dot or a yantra or something is an antidote to anxiety. Because it makes you forget. It simply takes all the contents of your mind, and instead of going it, pushing it into pain, it doesn't push it against pain either. It simply pushes it into an other direction. And therefore, it simply creates, instead of the alternative A and not A, it creates the alternative B, something entirely different, which is neither A nor the opposite of A, but which is just something else. Shall I go, shall I be sad or merry? I should be focusing in a black dot, which is something entirely different, both from sadness and merriness. It's simply uh, diverting all my mental energy somewhere else, and thus keeping, it's like I would say, keep your mind busy. If you keep your mind busy, every time I feel I'm going to go depressed, I focus in a black dot then I don't have time to get depressed because I keep my mind busy with a black dot or whatever it is. And therefore, this is an allopathic technology. I'm simply diverting the energy of the mind somewhere else and I can deal then with these negative things. It sounds as a pretty stupid technique, but it actually works and it works quite often. It is one of the key things which happens, for example, when people quit smoking. Very often people can quit smoking psychologically much more easily if they keep themselves busy with something else. The worst situation for a person who tries to quit smoking is when that person gets bored and has nothing to do. Because when you get bored and have nothing to do, the only thing to do is to resume your habit of smoking. Therefore, a person who is wants to quit smoking, my first advice is do yoga from morning till evening, do karma yoga, Keep yourself busy, involve yourself with the world, don't hardly give yourself time to eat and sleep, and for the rest make the daily program so loaded for yourself that you will not even have the time to think about smoking. And of course, you have to do something which you like and which you are enthusiastic about, because if not, you will reject it. And if you are going full power for something that you like, your desire, the problem of the mind is very easy to eliminate. That's the injunction of Patanjali, corrected by putting the mind in another direction, but fully, fully putting it in that direction. Like he says, the removal of those obstacles and accompanying symptoms, for removal of them, the practice of concentration of one-on-one -on -one principle is to be done. This is Dharana from Yoga Ekagrata, the focusing on one thing, the best exemplifications of it are, of course, the Shambhavi Mudra and the techniques of Trataka. These are typical techniques of focusing the mind on one thing, which Patanjali considers that these can kill the nine obstacles of the mind and the accompanying symptoms which come with those. And that is very important. Remember, you think, I have pain, do Trataka. When you get tired of Trataka, do Shambhavi Mudra. And when you get tired of Shambhavi Mudra, 
do Udhyana Banda. And then when you finish with Udhyana Banda, if you still feel that you have anxiety, restart with Trataka. And keep on with Trataka and Shambhavi and Udhyana until you drop dead in the evening. And then when you wake up in the morning, if you feel more anxiety, start with more Trataka and more Shambhavi and more Udhyana and more. And don't give yourself time to breathe. Simply go on at a breakneck rhythm and you will see that you can defeat any negative state of mind in this way. Therefore, that's a very solar solution because it simply says take initiative. Push yourself, keep yourself busy and then it is possible to gain time and to redivert your energy and then it will be possible to go somewhere else. And he gives an example and this example is actually partial. He gives a few examples of how to deal with uh, some things of life, some of the great things of life. This is a beautiful sutra. It has so many applications. It's one of the most uh, joyous sutras. It's one of the most constructive and moralizing sutras from the Yoga Sutra. And here actually he does not uh, continue linearly with the idea from the previous sutra. In the previous sutra he said again, for removing of those obstacles and accompanying symptoms, the practice of concentration on one principle is to be done. And in the next one, which is like a parenthesis, which is like an extension of this, he like gives examples, but these examples are not just a one-pointed thing, whatever, but he gives some concrete examples, and those concrete examples rather seem to be opposites. They are not really opposite, actually, as I'm going to read them, but they are more like very specific attitudes. So he's like, not he says, well, anything will do. A black dot will do. He kind of gives concrete examples in which he says, this will do best. So there is a kind of specific cure for some things or a wise attitude to some things. And they are very, very beautiful. He says, by cultivating the attitude of sympathy to happiness, compassion for misery, joy for virtue, and indifference to vice, the mind becomes purified and peaceful. Therefore, he recommends, he divides the, the attitude in two opposites, which are happiness and misery, happiness and sadness, and then virtue and vice, the two uh, extremes. And he recommends Sympathy to happiness, compassion to misery. So he says, when you are confronted with happiness, either your happiness or somebody else's happiness, cultivate the feeling of sympathy. Sympathize with it. This is actually a form of resonance. Sympathy is just another way of saying resonance. So he says, when encountering happiness, resonate with it. Try to surround yourself by happy people. Be with happy people. Be with successful people. If you are going to read any management story of today, any handbook in management and self-improvement, you are going to see that people like Anthony Robbins and whoever, Anthony Robbins a little bit less than others, because he has a slightly different attitude, but others, one of their golden rules is don't surround yourself with losers. If your friends are losers, change your friends. It's as simple as that. Because they simply say it's a matter of resonance. 
those who surround themselves by losers will cultivate the resonance of losing. And therefore, if you want to be unhappy, surround yourself by unhappy people. If not, people can say, well, isn't that a bit of an egoistic thing? Not if you want to save your ass first and then to be able to save others, which is the logical thing to do. That means it's stupid to try to drag others from the mud when you yourself cannot swim through it. Therefore, make sure that you get a firm foothold first and then you are going to help others. That is why it's not egoistic. It's just logical. If, for example, you don't know how to swim and you try to help somebody else, it's most probable that you'll both drown. Therefore, it's more logical that first you will try to grab a boat or something and then help somebody in your boat. It's exactly like the advice which you receive in the airplanes where it says if there is a lot of pressure in the cabin and the oxygen masks are dropping, first attend to yourself and then put it to your child. While a normal caring mother would say, oh my God, this sounds really egoistic. First I have to help the child because he is smaller, he has a smaller amount of blood, his lungs are smaller, he is more frail, God knows how long the baby will resist. So first I have to give oxygen to the baby. But what experiments from aviation show, what result is that until the mother fixes the baby, she blacks out and then in the end she doesn't manage to fix the baby and she blacks out herself because of the lack of pressure. And that is why you have to do the egoistic act of first fixing yourself and then fixing whoever else falls into your radius of action. And that is why here they simply say sympathy to happiness. Sympathize with happiness. You see happiness around you, surround yourself by happiness. It's not egoistic. If you surround yourself by unhappiness, then you should be of the caliber of uh, Milarepa or Padre Pio or whoever to be able to bear on your shoulders the misery and unhappiness of others, which usually you do by an act of martyrdom anyhow. And therefore what I'm trying to say here is this. First of all, you have to surround yourself by happiness. It's a matter of resonance. So he simply says, sympathy, to, to have friendliness to the happiness and to the happy people. Wherever you see success, you should be there. Of course, success can be a pseudo-success, because even the tyrants and the dictators think they have success, but their success is not based on happiness. Their success is based on horror, and therefore it leads to hell. Here, Patanjali is pretty clear what he means by happiness. He means the real happiness. He doesn't talk in superficial terms that somebody is laughing today and then crying for the rest of their lives. He talks about happiness in the real meaning. So, uh, and what about the unhappy? What about the misery? Well, Patanjali says you are not supposed to turn back to them. You are not supposed to uh, kind of ignore them or dump them. But he describes the attitudes towards this part of life as compassion. So, cultivating compassion for the unhappy, for the misery, which automatically puts you in another condition. I don't know if you realize, but compassion is resonance, and at the same time it is not resonance. For example, by mercy, by sympathy, by empathy, which is the path of the heart, truly, automatically one obtains a similar condition. Therefore, when Ramakrishna was experiencing empathy, 
when Jesus or others were experiencing sympathy, empathy from the heart, they actually experienced the painful condition of the other, and they were able to do that for a while because they were powerful enough to cleanse and compensate the other. The Buddhist path, for example, doesn't call it mercy. Mercy is almost an organic thing. Somebody whips somebody in front of you, and you make, oh, and it hurts you, and when they take off your shirt, like with Ramakrishna, they find red marks on your back, because you took the pain upon yourself, like the stigmata of Francis of Assisi or others. It's a kind of sharing it, and that's anahata. But compassion, which is from ajna, is a kind of intellectual thing. I am up here, I am looking down there at that swarming mass of people who suffer, and what do I feel for them? Compassion. I feel compassion. And I am like a philosopher who says, poor, poor humanity, poor world. I want to help them so much, and I will stay here around sharing my wisdom with them, and I will be here, and I'm full of compassion. But I don't know if you realize that this compassion is lacking this organic side in which I feel the pain of those people on my body, through my body. It's not there. It's mental. It's a compassion which is detached. When I'm having mercy, if I have mercy for you, it's like you are my brother. I'm your brother. You are my brother. You are my sister. I'm your brother. And I feel mercy for you. And it's like we are both yoked at the same heavy yoke. And we are both pulling the same incredible weight of life because I am with you, my brother. I am with you, my sister. We are both there. When I am having compassion, I am like your father. I am from above. I am like an immortal God who has compassion for you. And I can say a prayer. I can send a blessing. I can involve myself. I can give knowledge. But there is a limit to what I am willing to do. Am I willing to get wounds on my body for you? Not really. And therefore, this is compassion, not mercy. That's the huge difference between the Buddhist loving kindness called compassion, which is mental, detached from above, and the Christian mercy, which is Jesus-like, bleeding for the one for whom you feel the mercy, and which is directly from the heart. And therefore... Here Patanjali advises compassion, like a real Raja Yogi coming from Ajna, he advises compassion, not sympathy for misery. Jesus would say perhaps sympathy for misery, but Patanjali says compassion for the misery. That simply means with the happiness you are online, attuned, empathy, but with the suffering you are superior detached, you treat it from above. It's not that you are not good, please understand. I'm not criticizing or loathing any of them. They are both two valid approaches, and many mystics had both of them at the same time, which meant more, which made it more difficult to see what was what. But remember that in fact, through the chakras, these two are different. The mercy and the compassion. And here, Patanjali is very smart. He says, with the happiness you cultivate identification, empathy, and with the suffering you cultivate compassion. That simply means, be protective, be compassionate, be ready to help, be ready to give happy, to give knowledge,
be ready to give assistance, but you are not there. You will not experience the pain because you do not wish that your mind should go in agony, pain, anxiety. Therefore, this is a pretty detached way of dealing with things. It's typical both to Buddhism and at the same time to the Raja Yoga, to these forms of ascetic yoga, jnana yoga, yogas of the mind, the yogas of the high chakras. Some people can find attractive the path of the heart, because they say, oh, I prefer to go through the heart, but remember that the path of the heart, while it is absolutely amazing and it gives you goosebumps when see, you see people in that, it is actually utterly frighteningly, amazingly difficult because very few people have got the stamina to go there. I was seeing today again a documentary about the life of Padre Pio who had this stigmata and he was in pain all his life and the more miracles he did the more he was lying in bed ill and he never complained about his illness and he was ill for something like 40-50 years of his life non-stop almost and the same is valid about St. Teresa of Avila, just to see that he was not the only one. And therefore many people can say, what? You do spirituality to be ill? Yes, in a Christian spirituality, yes. In a Buddhist spirituality you say, I saved my ass, let them solve their problem. The only bridge between me and them is compassion, and I give them knowledge and guidance. But this guy, he wanted to give himself and that's the path of the heart which is so much more complete, but so much more frightening. There there was the witness of Padre Pio that he started his mystical career in 1918 at the end of the First World War, which was a mutilating, a crippling war where tens of millions of young men died, and Padre Pio openly and explicitly pay, prayed that he should be allowed to pay for all those people in any way God wants, so that the war can stop and that the suffering can stop. He simply offered himself as a young man and he made an absolutely goosebump giving prayer in which he simply prayed, God, please stop this human suffering. I offer myself for everything. Kill me, torture me, do whatever you want with me. I offer myself to suffer as much as necessary just if you stop the killing of those innocent people out there. It is very difficult to presume that the prayer of one man had all the effect, because actually the war did stop in 1918. It did reach its uh, conclusion. It, it was never stated that actually Padre Pio stopped the war, because there must have been many, many others who did pray and did meditate and did other things. But what I'm talking here is about attitude. His attitude is from the heart. It's an attitude of sympathy and empathy. Patanjali says, in front of misery, of suffering, of unhappiness, you are supposed to be compassionate. Here is where the path of the heart and the path of the mind separate. If you want to follow the path of the heart, you have to go into it. If you want to follow the path of the mind, then you have to separate from it, the way Patanjali says, exert compassion. And he continues, gladness about virtue, joy for virtue. It is funny that in most forms of spirituality, many people, the envious ones, they went berserk when they saw other people more virtuous. Starting with Jesus, 
who was coveted and envied for being righteous and virtuous and pointing a very sharp finger at all those around him who are fakes and hypocrites and finishing with others and others even in the example which I gave today about Padre Pio when you see, and it's a history from the 20th century which is pretty well documented it's not some unknown mysterious history from 10 centuries ago or something and you get appalled to see how many people did so many shit to this man and you can ask yourself only why and it's a well known thing I have seen it in my life in so many spiritual circles where I have been that people were simply moved by an absolutely demonic and incredible envy envy, pure envy when somebody was reaching something all the people around in the same circle like monks in the same monastery who felt that they did not get enough attention the good old ego in the end people who felt that they were not reaching and this upstart bastard did reach they started undermining and sapping the reputation of this one with anonymous denounces with all kind of sabotages with all kind of engineering schemes and all kind of incredible things and you can ask yourself didn't those people have anything to do if they were monks in a monastery why did they come to that monastery to pray, to purify, to save why didn't they get busy with the object of their why did they look to the left and to the right getting busy with this and actually this was nothing else but the effect of this envy envy when you see virtue Patanjali says you should rejoice in virtue whenever you see somebody around you who is virtuous who is respecting their virtues who cultivates a beautiful non-violence or truthfulness or this or that somebody who is very much doing karma yoga or this or that somebody who is doing lots of hatha yoga lots of this or that real, the real good things which are the spiritual virtue you should rejoice, you should dance with joy because here is somebody, here is a brother or sister of mine who is doing an amazing work and I am so happy, I sympathize, I have gladness about it and therefore this is the proper attitude he gives here four essential attitudes to two opposing things he said sympathy for happiness and compassion for misery and now he says gladness for virtue, joy for virtue and indifference to vice if you are confronted with vice don't oppose it, don't fight it, be indifferent to it it's exactly like some uh, in Christianity and in Judaism they said you are if you are confronted with uh, this I don't know, I, I forgot the exact formulation but they said that you should be deaf like you should be uh, I think actually now I have made a confusion because this is what I say now it is from Kahlil Gibran Kahlil Gibran who had a Christian inclination and who was into this Islamic Christian type of trend he said that when you hear about criticism and negative things you should be deaf like the stones or like the hills or something like this like you should not participate into it for example the fathers of the desert eminent moralist eminent moral and ethical students of Christianity they had the rule one of their most beautiful rules which I have seen in practice uh, like written from their practice but I have met people still practicing this kind of thing 
they said whenever you are in the situation of being confronted with somebody practicing evil ways, vice or this or that, uh, and if you are not in the position to show them the real path, or if these people are about to create a conflict or something, whatever you, what you have to them, is, what you have to tell to them is, you know what you are speaking about, and simply if possible, get away. Like somebody is coming and telling you an incredible cock and bull story, you know that this and this and this and this, and one of these old men would have looked at you and have said, you know what you are talking about. It's kind of, it may be true, it may be false, I am completely indifferent to this thing which you are, kind of, you know what you are talking about. It's, it's kind of, I don't drag me into it because I will not go there. This is such a slippery thing, you know what you are talking about. You can simply say, you know that uh, this guy is an asshole. Well, you know what you are talking about. It's kind of, it does not affect me. This is pure Patanjalian approach where it says joy for virtue and indifference to vice. Then the mind of the aspirant becomes free of disturbing influences and as a result it becomes transparent and undisturbed. Therefore, here Patanjali has said you can focus on the opposite, you can focus on one thing, and in particular he gives this example that confronted with happiness, misery, virtue, and vice, these attitudes would be the best. As you can see, they are not opposite, because if you are going to have joy for virtue, then you should have anger or sadness for vice. But no, for vice he recommends just indifference. Be joyful whenever somebody does an act of virtue and shrug your shoulders with complete detachment when somebody does an act of vice because if you do not have the position to be their teacher or if your opinion is not asked, then what can you do? What can, whatever you will do will provoke more demonic reactions, more tell to a drunk that he is a drunk and he will go on a tantrum and make a complete thing out of which loss of bloodshed and loss of life can result an endless conflict. That is why you don't tell them. He says, oh, I'm getting drunk, well, don't you want to get drunk as well? You know what you're talking about. You know, it's kind of what you say is yours. I'm not with you, definitely. No, it's kind of, you know what you say. If I can tell you, maybe this is not so good, then I'm already doing the function of a guru. I'm teaching you a lesson and remember that sometimes a lesson is not welcome. A uh, very clear dictum says you should not give advice unless it is asked of you. And therefore, uh, here in this situation, Patanjali is maintaining a wisdom mostly coming from Ajna Chakra. This is a policy of Ajna Chakra to cultivate this. From the heart, the attitude will be slightly different at times. Some of them are identical, but some of them are different as I have told you already. And Patanjali continues his beautiful list of methods of cleansing the mind. He's talking about these obstacles of the mind, these doubt, disease and so on, which generate fear, pain, anxiety, nervousness and all those. And he's giving us methods again how to deal with those because he wants to talk about Samadhi. He just spoke about the things which are the obstacles. 
And uh, for his next sutra, number 34, describes another approach, which is incredible. This is one of the foundations of pranayama. In Hatha Yoga, it shows you the true spiritual dimension of pranayama. The sutra number 34 says, Or, by expiration and retention of breath, one can control the mind. By expiration and then retention of breath, which means void retention. Anybody who studied pranayama knows in this school we call this void retention, which means that you hold your breath with the lungs empty, with the air out. Patanjali doesn't say it by holding the breath, it says by expiration and then retention of the breath, which is very, very clear. It doesn't speak about full retention. Full retention brings a lot of things into you. Void retention is the one by which you cleanse, is the one by which you expel, it is the one by which you purify. Those of you who have done pranayama, who have studied pranayama in this school, you know that the characteristic of the void retention in the classical yogic breath, in the complete yogic breath in pranayama, is the fact that in the void retention we focus on sahasrara, on the crown chakra, and we absorb the creative void, the energy of the cosmic creative void, through all the pores and nadis of the aura, but mostly through sahasrara. Therefore, the void retention is characteristic for sahasrara, because in the order of manifestation, full is prakriti and void is purusha. And that is illustrated by the famous technique of the tantric vipassana, the energy form of vipassana, where the breathing is going between full, which is in prakriti and in the heart, and void, which is in purusha and which is in sahasrara. And therefore, we are talking about a pendulum movement. Full, inhale, inhale and be full, exhale and be void. Therefore, the way to get out of the mind, the way to purify, the way to go in the center from where everything becomes possible, that omniscience of the spirit of Purusha about which he spoke, that uh, fact that the spirit of Purusha contains in it the seed of all omniscience, and it is the guru of all gurus does. That neutral point, that neutral gear through which everything goes, that void, that center of the hub, of the wheel of all energies, being Purusha, is actually attainable in the void retention. This shows automatically the utter spiritual importance of the void retention in Pranayama, and actually allow me to remind, because I have mentioned already this, as a method of intensive practice, that even our already notorious Udhyana Banda, it's notorious for all of you that it's almost one of the sweet obsession of the yogis in Tantric Yoga and Kundalini Yoga, Udhyana Banda, Udhyana Banda, Udhyana Banda, Udhyana Banda, is actually, besides being a Banda, it is actually nothing else but a void retention, a prolonged void retention. And therefore, the void retention, Patanjali says, is a way of dematerializing thoughts. It's a way in which you take energy of thoughts from Prakriti and simply turn them void, puff them out of manifestation. It's exactly like you take shitty energy and dematerialize it, take it out. And therefore, the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali gives the esoteric, ultimate, metaphysical justification 
for the use of the methods of pranayama in void retention and therefore Patanjali says if you do void retention it is more easy to get rid of the negative things because you can simply send them out of existence anything which disturbs you dematerialize it and send it back to the creator send it back to the creative void where it has come from and therefore this is the outer retention the void retention and we could continue this but you learn plenty about this in pranayama I just wanted to call your attention on the fact that even the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali while not explicitly describing exercises of Hatha Yoga and Kundalini Yoga nevertheless it contains this wisdom included the yogis have observed that by void retention you can control the mind and you can control your energy and actually that by void retention you can do better so than by full retention and this is a practical teaching that you can use a lot and he continues or else another alternative the mind can be made steady by bringing it into higher harmonious activity of sense experience and here of course tantric yoga is an excellent example of such a path Patanjali refers here to two levels it simply says you should focus your mind another way to get rid of all those obstacles and of the painful things such as pain, anxiety, nervousness of the body unrhythmic breathing is to focus, he says, the mind by bringing it into harmonious activity of sense experience the commentators of Patanjali have found two different meanings to this sutra one which is more tantric and one which is more aesthetic. The aesthetic one says, you are going to focus your mind on perceptions of the senses until you bring them to paranormal perception of the senses, or what yoga calls usually siddhis or ridhis, paranormal powers, paranormal perceptions. If you focus on the nose, so to speak, because it's not really on the nose, but there is something which starts with the nose, because the nose is the Jnanendriya, the Gyanendriya, the sense organ for the sense of smell, then automatically you can perceive the subtle smells of nature. It's like a clairvoyance at the end, at the level of smells and odors. If you focus your attention on the tip of the tongue, then you can feel the paranormal sense of uh, taste. How long will that take? Well, it can take 20 years of doing it daily. That's not important. What is important for the people who wrote this is that this can lead to cities. It can lead to paranormal perceptions. And then automatically, if your mind is focused on that, then automatically all the negativities will be eliminated. I must admit that this interpretation seems to be a bit forced by the Vedantic and ascetic people because uh, actually it corresponds best to something which Patanjali has already written. Patanjali has already written that if you focus on one object, one pointed concentration, until you get really, really absorbed into it, you can forget about the negative things of the mind. Therefore, what difference will there be between focusing on a black dot or focusing on the tip of your tongue to feel I don't know, or focusing on the third eye, to start seeing auras or something like this. 
It's basically just another concentration on a point. It doesn't make a big conceptual difference, like a totally different category. While the other interpretation, which is more uncomfortable for the Vedantic ascetic people, actually says something else. You can focus, you can make the mind steady by bringing it into higher harmonious activity of sense experience. For example, if you feel something very pleasant, your mind will get calm. The ultimate pleasant thing which relies all senses being, of course, the orgasm in Tantra. If you can experience a lot of orgasm, your mind will get very calm. And in this way you can lose all your negativities and you wipe out all the negativities by simply resorting to a great pleasure. It's not only the orgasm. A great harmonious thing can be, for example, a very beautiful music. Either the Nada of Nada Yoga, which is a fascinating hypnotic sound, or simply an absolutely superb music. You listen to a beautiful music, and you feel that the wickedness inside you melts away like snow in front of the sun. And basically, by the fact that you absorb yourself into something harmonious, that something is like a Laya Yoga. This would be the principle of Laya Yoga then, that you are getting absorbed into something harmonious, and then automatically negativities of the mind can be replaced by one flavor. They can be replaced by something which unifies the mind. The Shaktopaya in Kashmir Shaivism is also using this principle, that if you use intense sensations, intense emotions, and therefore intense energy, you can unify your mind, and thus you can already have the glimpse of some ecstatic state of consciousness. This is very difficult to understand from an ascetic standpoint. Remember that it is simply like sweeping away negativity by a very beautiful, pleasant energy. And this is meant to take those energies to a point where they become very intense, but nevertheless, here Patanjali mentions that it should be a higher, harmonious activity of the sense experience. So, not just intensity, some forms of tantric teaching, like in Shaktopaya, in Kashmir Shaivism, they actually say, well, anything which goes over the top in terms of intensity will wipe out any differentiation, because they say even if you are afraid when you are running from a battlefield, if you are a soldier escaping from a battlefield and 20 meters behind you there is somebody running with a big pole axe to stab you, then uh, what you do is that you cannot think about anything else and you are completely unified. And actually Kashmir Shaivism says that's a good occasion to reach Samadhi, even if it might be the last Samadhi of your life, but at least it's a good occasion to reach it. And therefore what I'm trying to say here is uh, Patanjali here is more correct, because he says forget about these life-threatening ones, these are exceptional things which you don't practice, they might happen to you, but in terms of what you practice, you practice on the things which are harmonious and higher, of higher nature, and this is a path which is very difficult to understand again from an ascetic standpoint, because it means cultivating your senses. While most forms of spirituality in Vedanta in India, or in Buddhism, in Theravada Buddhism, 
they are afraid of the senses and the perceptions of them. The, these people, and Patanjali seems to be with them here on this point, they actually come and tell us that you can cleanse your mind of pain, anxiety and those by simply experiencing with the senses fully something which is higher and something which is harmonious. And remember that this is one of the most beautiful understandings and ex mental explanations of Tantra and of the sexual pleasure itself, not to mention all the other dimensions of pleasure. Remember that you can give yourself pleasure of the senses. Here is, of course, I can remind you the story of the American guy who is a casebook story already, is a classic, who was ill with cancer. I forgot his name, I have it somewhere on a tape and who decided that he had cancer and he had to die, he simply started having a kind of laughter therapy. He rented all the comic movies from Laurel and Hardy and Charlie Chaplin all the way to Jerry Lewis and the modern comedians, <coughs> and he simply laughed his ass every day for hours non-stop. He was watching comedies on his VCR almost non-stop, and the result was that in six months his cancer disappeared because he pleased himself. He pleased himself daily hours in a row, and the result of that can be only elimination of evil. If his cancer was having any psychosomatic reason, that he was thinking in a shitty way or whatever, he laughed himself to oblivion, and his cancer was gone, because the psychosomatic root of it had been eliminated. Therefore, this is a very happy sutra all in all, because it says that you can even use the senses, but bring them to this higher, harmonious, leveling, intense, unifying activity, and then you will experience the calmness of the mind, which is, if you have that, then you can go to samadhi. If you don't have that, then that's an obstacle. It's one of the obstacles to samadhi. That is why we can say that even from the strictly sexual standpoint of sexual tantra, love making is an excellent preparation for samadhi because it simply, when it is done right, it creates precisely this harmonious, total, higher stimulation of the sense experience. And the 30, sutra number 36, and it will be, unfortunately, the last one because there come more here, the number 36 says, Or the luminous state which is beyond sorrow can control the mind. Here basically, they, uh, Patanjali is alluding, and he himself in the chapter number 3 gives one example of those. He is alluding to the various concentrations on inner luminosity. Patanjali speaks about the fact that this ultimate vibration of the divine forces can be experienced by the human being as an ultimate sound, which is called Nada in Laya Yoga, or it is, and in Kashmir Shaivism, of course, and the others, and it can be experienced as a light, as a spiritual light. Unfortunately, people are not at all very clear about this, this spiritual light is mixed up, and especially by people who do magic, visualization, people who are very strong on their astral body, people who are very strong on their Manipura chakra, 
they often have the tendency to have all kind of visions and to have the tendency to see all kind of light and therefore they believe that those lights are actually signifying anything divine. Please wake up. Any person can dream of a fire or of a light in their dream and that light does not symbolize the light of the divine. Remember that actually the light symbolizes often fire. The fire element is a light-giving element and it is effulgent and actually sinking, merging with the fire element, it actually just gives more egoism, more manipura. That's why samyama with the fire element is sometimes a very delusive aspect. There are many secret societies which are deviated from the real spirituality and I'm not going to start today going into that because it's not my subject of tonight, who are worshipping all kind of fire, the sacred fire of this or that, and actually when you look at their teachings and ways of action and fruit, fruits of the tree, which is fundamental, you find out that it's Manipura, Manipura, Manipura. Egoism, egoism, egoism. Domination, domination, domination. Power, 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 and all the rest of the things which are there, which automatically says those people are not talking about the spiritual light. Light appears in many ways, and many people are tempted to believe that if they close their eyes and see some light, that automatically is a guarantee of spirituality. That's why many people even say, oh, but candles, for example, I met one of my early New Age friends, said, oh, let's light a candle because the fire is the Holy Spirit. No, the fire is the third element, Tejas Tattva, from Manipura Chakra, and the Holy Spirit means something entirely, entirely different. Although sometimes the Holy Spirit has been represented as flames of fire, but it did not mean the burning fire. In one of the most outstanding miracles which happens on this planet every year in the Easter time in Jerusalem, in the Church of Resurrection of Christ, when this immaterial fire descends from heaven and some people get their candles bursting in, fl in flames, the characteristics of this fire is that for approximately 10 to 30 seconds, and until it is passed to the third person on, it does not burn. You can put your face in it, you can put your hands in it, it's a fire which does not burn. That is not Tejas Tadva, it's more like the Holy Spirit. But the fire which burns is just the third element of alchemy, and it is not the real fire. That's why, let's make it clear, this Sutra of Patanjali is liable to misinterpretation by people who have a lot of visions and who, because of a development of their Manipura Chakra or because of a strong development of their astral body, which none of them is the final result to the human evolution, by, because of a strong development of those, is seeing a lot of lights and fires and things like this and they would assume automatically that that is the answer. It isn't. The light of which Patanjali speaks is a light of light. It is not the light which you can see even in visions. It is exactly like nada is the sound of sound. Any one of you who can hear nada in their meditations, try to compare nada, this pure internal sound, with the internal sound. Not with the external one, with internal. Try, for example, to speak in your head, talk to yourself in your mind, or sing a song in your mind. 
and see how much does that actually differ from the actual nada. Nada is a qualitatively different sound. It's pure. It's cosmic. It has something crystal pure, a certain quality to it, and that's not what... In the same way, this spiritual light is one step beyond the visualized light. It is the light beyond light. It is the light of light, and it can appear through processes like Trataka and Shambhavi Mudra, but when they are taken to a very advanced stage of practice. That is why what Patanjali says here is actually the root of a whole lineage in yoga. He says one way, another way to stabilize the mind, controlling the mind, is to focus on the luminous state, which is beyond sorrow, a special luminous state. And therefore, this luminosity... Swami Vivekananda, the great of India, in his commentary to the Yoga Sutra, he identifies it like the light of the self, Jivatman, in the heart. He says you should imagine that you have the lotus of the heart containing first being switched off, and then as the lotus of the heart opens inside him. He doesn't mean Anahata. He means this Hrid. He means this Jivatman, that inside there is the light of the heart. That would be like a meditation a la Ramana Maharishi on the Jivatman, on the heart. Actually, the more advanced texts of yoga, and Patanjali himself will come back to that, they actually point most often to this light in Ajna Chakra and in Sahasrara, to visualizations of light in Ajna Chakra and Sahasrara. Most often, in the way in which Patanjali describes, exception made of one sutra, where he comes back to that, he actually, they actually mean light in Ajna Chakra. Visualization of paranormal light in Ajna Chakra is forms of different Tratakas in yoga. It is the subject of the Shambhavi Mudra in its advanced forms. And ultimately in the higher yogas, it is the subject of the mysterious Taraka Yoga, the Amanaska Yoga, the Unmani Yoga, the Taraka Yoga, which you get to learn in this school at advanced stages which are all forms of dealing with this special light of light, which is more than a visualization, which is beyond than that. And these Taraka Yoga and visualizations of light, they actually have two stages. One which starts in Ajna Chakra, and which is mostly used. Even in Trataka you have stages where you visualize like a golden light of the sun, a golden yellow shining sunlight in your third eye, inundating the being, spreading in the aura, and which is used for so many beautiful things, and then when it goes deeper, it goes towards the internal light, and then it goes, actually it moves to Sahasrara, to Brahmarandra, to the top of the head and above, which is actually reminded by Patanjali in chapter 3, as you will see, and which is actually one of the fundamental techniques of meditation, also described by the fundamental text, Vijnana Bhairava Tantra. And therefore, all in all, Patanjali here touches a perennial constant of Indian practical mysticism, which are the various concentrations on light, but not on this astral light from the visions, but on an effulgent spiritual light, which is more often, most often associated with Agnya Chakra and with Sahasrara. Only Swami Vivekananda, the great, taking a different direction, giving a slightly different commentary, he actually says you can do it with a light in the third chakra and with a light with the 
which belongs therefore to the heart. But 99% all the other commentators, they point here to all the forms of Raja Yoga, Yoga of the mind, which use forms of inner light, subtle light, belonging first to Agya Chakra and then to Sahasrara. These forms which are most classically materialized in India under the form of what is called Taraka Yoga are actually oriented half of it towards Ajna Chakra, the first half, the beginner practice, and then the second half of it towards Sahasrara, the advanced practice, and they are all of them extremely advanced forms of spiritual practice which deal with the arousing of Ajna and Sahasrara. Here Patanjali says, he substantiates this fundamental truth, you can also purify the mind of its pain, anxiety, nervousness, and all those obstacles of the mind by working with this effulgent light of the mind in Ajna and Sahasrara according to the specific methods which are equivalent to Laya Yoga. Exactly as Laya Yoga does that with sound, it can also do it with light. And you are going to learn about these kind of things in practice when your level of practice reaches there. So in this way, I have told you about this as an alternative method. Patanjali already has described several methods. To purify, you can do this, or you can do this, or you can do this, or now, he says, you can use this light. Therefore, the using of this meditative light in Sahasrara is for him a preferred method to which he gives credence. He simply says, this method will work for eliminating obstacles and the unple their unpleasant symptoms from the mind and therefore it will open the way to Samadhi. He ascribes that by using this method which start with Trataka, again Trataka, Shambhavi, Taraka and this family of methods, they are methods which can reach towards Samadhi. We are going to stop here with a little bit of meditation on Ajna Chakra to absorb these truths. <coughs> Actually Patanjali continues with other methods. He actually gives a lot of alternatives for a lot of people and that's the beauty. He's very universal. He already listed pranayama, he listed working with light taraka and others and he will continue with other methods for purifying the mind but purifying the mind not as a general concept. I want to say it again. Patanjali talks about death purifying of the mind which eliminates the obstacles to Asamprajnata Samadhi, which eliminates the obstacles to the high forms of Samadhi. That's what he's talking about in particular. Now let us end by meditating a few minutes to absorb these fundamental truths, and then we'll stop tonight's discourse.